Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, so yes, I'm going to be talking about, uh, as Mohamed uh, Salah said, barbarisms, multilingualism and modernity in narratives of the Spanish-speaking world. So one of the most salient features of modernism was its linguistic or even multilingual turn. Its consciousness of the fraught relationship between language and world that manifested itself in multilingual experimentalism. The multilingualism of modernism was a diverse phenomenon encompassing a range of attitudes and approaches to the cosmopolitanism, newness and mobility for which it stood. But it was in any case a phenomenon that left an indelible mark on 20th century literature. The indelible nature of this mark of the modern is not merely a testament to modernism, however, but is more particularly a reflection of the ongoing nature of modernisation and the demographic upheaval, post-colonial consciousness and globalisation that characterised the 20th century well beyond the period traditionally associated with modernism. In the 1970s, George Steiner recognised the contemporary significance of literary multilingualism in this much broader historical context, arguing that such extraterritorial writers as Borges, Beckett and Nabokov had not only put in doubt the, as he puts it, the romantic equation of a single pivot of language of native deep-rootedness with poetic authority, but had generated a profoundly modern sensibility that spoke for the historical constitution of their century. To quote, It seems proper that those who create art in a civilization of quasi-barbarism, which has made so many homeless, which has torn up tongues and peoples by the root, should themselves be poets unhoused and wanderers across language. The subject of literary multilingualism is a vast one, woven into diverse cultural histories around the world. But both at its most aesthetically abstracted and at its most located and historicised, it is implicated in the aesthetic and cultural discourse of modernity. Multilingualism both highlights the dynamic and cross-cultural forces that characterise the modern era and radically embodies the heteroglossia that for Bakhtin characterises the modern novel. It manifests the uncertainty and agitation of an age in which all that is solid melts into air, to quote Marx, in a fracturing of linguistic unity associated with both modernist and postmodernist aesthetics. It is an especially apt way of representing what Brett Nielsen describes as the disjunctive connections of modernity, characterised as much by movements of national self-definition as by the global movement of people. The consolidation of the Spanish nation in 1492, a year which brought the capture of the last Moorish stronghold in Spain by the Catholic kings, Columbus's departure for the New World, and Antonio de Nebrija's publication of the first Castilian grammar, was, after all, predicated on the expulsion of Jews on the one hand and both conquest and reconquest on the other, in what might be considered a virtual allegory of modern civilization's drive towards both inward consolidation and outward expansion. In those parts of the world that ushered in modern capitalism, modernity's transitions, unevenness and expansive drive have been at the heart of literary and artistic responses to it since the mid-19th century, but it was only once this instability was internalised that it came to be seen as a true mark of the modern. Multilingualism is in this sense the very speech and syntax of modernity, though like modernism itself, its aesthetic relationship to modernity is both varied and ambivalent. On the one hand, it can be a triumphant form of newness and resistance to conventional speech. On the other, it can express the unreconciled tensions of colonised or globalised speech. The fact that multilingualism supplies an ideal metaphor for the hybrid identities of contemporary discourse has, for example, been taken up by North American scholars keen to give a positive and progressive value to the USA's linguistic diversity, especially given the ex exponential growth of Spanish. 
The book jacket of Stephen Kelman's Translingual Imagination reads, Monolingualism as a form of oppression. Join the future. Read this book. While in her bilingual games, Doris Sommer asserts that now mono is a malady, an adolescent condition for times that have outgrown the one-to-one identity between language and people. But others have sounded a note of caution about this celebration of multilingualism as a metaphor for plural democracy. As Gustavo Pérez Firmat writes, although bilingualists are often playful, bilingualism is not a game. The bilingual muse is a melancholy muse. It divides and does not conquer. The fact that multilingualism remains at the heart of literary responses to modernity, outside the conventional bounds of modernism, and not merely an imitation of it, invites a consideration of the ways multilingualism is put at the service of a critical engagement with modernity through the middle and latter part of the 20th century. This is especially relevant in relation to contexts such as Spain and Spanish America, associated obliquely or latterly with canonical modernism, partly through critical oversight, it should be said, and whose modernity was shaped in relation to alternative historical landmarks. Neither Spain nor Latin America was properly involved in the First World War, generally considered the major historical landmark of modernism. In such contexts, the discourse of modernity is often caught up in perceptions of backwardness, belatedness, and indeed barbarism, perceptions which have dogged the Hispanic world's relationship to modernity. In the case of Spain, this has manifested itself especially in the Black Legend, which Edward Peters defines as an image of Spain circulated through late 16th century Europe, born by means of political and religious propaganda that blackened the characters of Spaniards and their ruler to such an extent that Spain became the symbol of all forces of repression, brutality, religious and political intolerance and intellectual and artistic backwardness for the next four centuries. The long-standing idea that Africa begins in the Pyrenees, highlighting Spain's proximity to North Africa as well as evoking the Muslim history of Al-Andalus, the name given to Moorish Spain, traditionally expresses an internalised idea of cultural and essential difference in relation to the rest of Europe. In Latin America, the preoccupation with civilization and barbarism is central to the consolidation of modern national identities after the 19th century wars of independence, making Domingo Faustino Sarmiento's novel Facundo, Civilización y Barbarie, Civilization and Barbarism, perhaps, as Edwin Williamson says, the single most influential literary work of modern Spanish-American culture. In the USA, as Donald Trump's we got to build us a wall and other remarks might indicate, the association of the Hispanic community with illegal migration and crime reveals entrenched negative cultural perceptions of both the people and the language, in spite of the perceived usefulness and popular currency of Spanish and its consequent popularity among language learners. Though the reach and spread of the Spanish language makes it one of the most widely spoken languages in the world, its perceived distance from what Pascal Casanova calls the Greenwich Mean Time of Culture leads linguist Claire Mar Molinero to ask if it is more accurate to describe Spanish as a global language than a world language. Putting a rather different spin on this question, journalist and academic and founder of um, Spanish Daily El País, Juan Luis uh, Thebrián, has described Spanish as a global but not a globalising language, a disparaging label he reserves for English, um, selectively forgetting the impact of Spanish on Native American and indeed other Iberian languages. The map of relations between languages is therefore at least as complex as the map of social, economic and cultural relations from which it arises. Where multilingualism arises in literature, it's therefore rarely a meeting of equals, but embodies perceptions of cultural difference often predicated on backwardness. 
This demands a counterpart to cosmopolitanism and a check on hybridity in thinking about the signs under which multilingualism operates in literature. Deriving from the Greek word barbaros to denote the uncivilised foreigner or outsider, and onomatopoeically conveying the stuttering or repetitive sound of incomprehensible foreign speech, the notion of barbarism is very suggestive in this context. While the most common meanings of barbarism gravitate around violence and the primitive, linguistic barbarisms denote an imported foreign element or error in morphology, reinforcing the association of foreignness with intrusion and disruption, the incomprehensible and inarticulate. If barbarism offers a way to think about the relationship between language and perceptions of the foreign, it also offers a way to think about that relationship in the specific context of modernity. The association of barbarism with violence and the primitive sets it in apparently natural opposition to civilization, though for thinkers as diverse as Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer and Paul Gilroy, barbarism is not only present within modern Western civilization, but is traceable to the philosophical project of the Enlightenment on which modernity's progressive ideology is founded. And if barbarism can be associated with the fracturing of the Enlightenment discourse of progress, it can also be read into the consequent but often problematic reclaiming of the primitive as a source of alternative values to those of capitalist modernity. Barbarism is therefore bound up in some of modernity's most striking contradictions. The traditional three-part dynamic of primitivism, barbarism and civilization is reformulated in modernity as spatial as well as temporal, the three terms coexisting rather than supplanting one another in neat temporal order. Consequently, barbarism, to quote Nielsen again, under modernity, becomes a global phenomenon describing the mutual misunderstandings and hierarchical relations that structure the disjunctive connections between communities. So the aim of my wider project is to explore how barbarism becomes a sign under which multilingualism engages with modernity, specifically in the work of authors writing in and about the Spanish-speaking world after 1940. 1940 is a year that hovers between the modernist period and its aftermath, when the Spanish Civil War had ended and the Second World War had begun, together marking the great cataclysm of 20th century modernity. It marks the beginning of a transition from the period we recognise as modern to a period whose ill definition as either modern or postmodern only highlights the rapid but uneven spread and intensification of modernisation. It is the year Walter Benjamin observed that there is no document of civilization which is not at the same time a document of barbarism. It's the year before the great polyglot and polymath Borges published his collection of stories, The Garden of Forking Paths. The year Ernest Hemingway published For Whom the Bell Tolls, his great bilingual novel of the Spanish Civil War, written in a spirit of warning and lament for the modern world. And a long way from the Greenwich Mean Time of Culture, it was also the year before José María Arguedas, a Peruvian writer, published his own bilingual novel, Yawar Fiesta, a novel of post-colonial modernisation which, as a manifestation of literary barbarism, offers some surprising but interesting parallels with For Whom the Bell Tolls. So it's these two authors, Hemingway and Arguedas, that I want to look at today. Hemingway and Arguedas are in many ways an unlikely pair, to say the least. Hemingway is a major figure of American modernism, widely travelled, cosmopolitan and internationally renowned, while Arguedas, little known outside the Spanish-speaking world, is identified with the indigenous movement that sought to give voice to the indigenous population of Latin America and whose fundamentally social and regional concerns put him out of step with the Latin American literary vanguard of the 1960s. Anecdotally, they have in common their anti-fascist sympathy for the Spanish Second Republic, 
their passionate descriptions of nature and their suicide in the 1960s. More substantially, they have in common their publication of a major work of bilingual fiction. Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls imports Spanish syntax and idiom into English, heavily defamiliarising the language of its dialogues, while Arguelas's Yawad Fiesta moulds Spanish to the rhythms of Quechua. Through what appears to be little more than literal and even incorrect translation, Hemingway produces a dialect that is both strange and intensified, integrating highly artificial, richly archaic language with both the colloquial and the oral. The dialect conveys a sense of the primitive, in various senses of the word, in its association with both the biblical and the vernacular, the ceremonial and the casual, bringing together speech and writing and pointing to the unspoken in either mode. Expressions relying on, on such translations and transpositions, such as not even in a joke, the blonde one with the rare name, or I besmirch the milk of thy duty, generate a style both aggravating and tersely beautiful. Critics have often responded negatively to this technique, finding Hemingway's Spanish to be bad and his English absurd. But a closer look reveals that he did not only create a highly original literary dialect, but also played subtly with semantic overlap between the two languages. Through cognates and false cognates, the author introduces nuances and layers of meaning that bring both cultural and historical depth to key themes of the novel. Arguelas's technique, which he termed mixtura, is somewhat different. Based on common Spanish calques and the elementary Spanish of indigenous speakers, that's his phrase, elementary Spanish, of indigenous speakers, the artificial dialect of Yawar Fiesta was intended to create a textual identity for the Quechua language that would avoid its mere representation in standard Spanish. To this end, Arguedas borrowed elements of Quechua syntax, pronunciation and vocabulary, generating, like Hemingway, a dialect at once literal and highly formalised, poetic but often jagged. Unlike Hemingway, though, the lexical borrowings of Yawar Fiesta do not in themselves convey greater semantic meaning. Rather, the yoking together of two languages is the stylistic embodiment of a real cultural mix of Western and non-Western elements, and the symbolic manifestation of a desire to discover new and empowering forms of expression. The novels offer two highly innovative approaches to the problem of representing one language in another, approaches that differ according to context, but which share an understanding of the ethical, political and cultural dimensions of an essentially artistic problem and which bear comparison because, to my mind at least, they constitute two of the most imaginative and credible attempts to generate bilingual effects in the novel. Two images in particular, the bull and the bridge, resonate with the author's shared concern to both maintain and bridge difference through language, in the context of a struggle over modernity. The bullfight takes on a powerfully symbolic resonance in the work of both authors. To look at their interest in the bullfight, is to understand some of the cultural issues that are at play in the novels more broadly. Hemingway's love of the bullfight is well known and well documented. He saw in the Spanish bullfight an expression of an attitude to death at once more earthly and more spiritual than he found in England, France or America. A ritual with its roots in ancient tragedy that demanded both valour and discipline and that ennobled consequently both bullfighter and bull. Though he has been accused of perpetuating a picture-postcard idea of Spain through his insistence on its place in Spanish culture, we cannot underplay the significance it had to his particular worldview. In the bullfight were the tragedy, the epic and the sacrament rolled into one, 
the elements of ritual culture destroyed by modernity in his own country and elsewhere, but not yet in Spain. In For Whom the Bell Tolls, this notion is put powerfully to the test. The novel's American protagonist, Robert Jordan, a teacher of Spanish, has gone to Spain to fight for the left-wing Republicans, joining a guerrilla band in the Guadarrama Mountains to the north of Madrid. Pablo, leader of the guerrilla band when Robert Jordan comes to join it, is soon ousted by his woman and wife, mujer means this both in Spanish, Pilar. The once brave Pablo has become a cowardly, untrustworthy drunk, a slide brought on by his role in a massacre at the start of the Civil War, or perhaps simply by fear. Pilar, on the other hand, is a force to be reckoned with, tough, uncompromising and loyal, believing in the Republic as those who have religious faith believe in the mysteries. A woman of an unbelievable barbarousness, as she's described. She is a Spanish Marianne with her rough earthly power, her heavy brown face with the high Indian cheekbones, her gypsy knowledge and her instinctive fear of the planes that fly overhead. With storytelling capacities that give her an implied connection to oral culture that roots her powerfully in home soil. Pilar's association with the ancient and the Aboriginal brings to mind the Greek and Roman association of barbarians not only with the foreign, but with the primitive and uncivilised. And certainly as an illiterate gypsy, a republican and a virile woman, Pilar would represent to the fascists an alien threat, one more terrifying member of the revolutionary hordes who obey the orders of foreign governments, as Frank had put it in 1936. Her virility also suggests a link with the Spanish barba, or beard, and this false etymology, uh, barba, in fact, is derived from Latin, barbarism from Greek, is one that Hemingway undoubtedly exploits. The conflict that Hemingway describes could be seen as a struggle between the advanced technological forces of modernity and the ancient culture embodied by Pilar and the largely illiterate peasants of her guerrilla band. But this would be to oversimplify because the peasants also represent an aspirational social modernity, the desire for a secular democratic republic. This is important because it would be easy to believe that Pilar, imbued with the aesthetic values of the bullfight, represents a nostalgically primitive culture. But in fact, it is arguably the nascent modernity in Pilar's attitude to death and killing that becomes most significant to the novel's broader ethical concern with barbarity and war. In his repeated use of the word barbarous, Hemingway exploits both the common meaning of the word in both English and Spanish to mean crudely violent, and the alternative associations it has in Spanish with greatness, magnificence and admiration. In this way, he evokes in the violence of war an epic and perhaps tragic notion of violence, in keeping with the more ancient and aesthetic value structure of the bullfight, while at the same time reinforcing the cruel, inglorious nature of killing in war. Pilar's famous account of the Republican atrocity at the start of the Civil War reveals this contrast. She recounts how in a small Spanish town, the peasants and Republicans beat to death and threw over a cliff anybody believed to be a fascist or to have fascist sympathies. When the killing began, the Republicans lined up solemnly, even respectfully, and prepared to commit these acts in sacrificial mode. But by the end, they had become a drunken, baying mob with a contemptuous lust for killing. There is, of course, a basic contrast here between the aesthetic, religious and even political legitimacy, if we can call it that, of a communal act committed with a sense of shared guilt, responsibility and dignity, and the uncontrolled savagery that, that unfolds. But the contrast is more significant even than that, because Pilar concludes in the end that all of it was ugly, even that which was glorious. 
It is not just that the sacrificial act conceived according to the same set of aesthetic values as the bullfight has been betrayed. It is that even that which was glorious is in fact ugly. Pilar's response navigates between an epic sense of war and a modern humanitarian sensibility, between a formalised value system based on honour, courage and summary justice, and a looser, incipiently modern sense that human life is the ultimate cost. This refusal to simplistically distinguish primitive from modern is reflected in the novel's use of language. Hemingway certainly supplies a roughness of expression in his translation of Spanish through the awkwardness and apparent clumsiness of unidiomatic English. But there are echoes of both the high and the low in the novel's use of the Spanish idiom, polarised echoes that offer more than just a contrast in register, but which suggest a linguistic range extending from the most improvised, basic and oral form of communication to the most stylized and sophisticated written form. The Spanish speakers of For Whom the Bell Tolls are for the most part illiterate, and this fact, combined with Pilar's great prowess as a storyteller, brings their language into the domain of the oral. This seems to be emphasised by Robert Jordan's association with both English, through his nickname Inglés, and the written word. But though Pilar is implicitly associated with oral culture and Pablo is illiterate, this is no reason to suppose that their language is not expressive of contemporary reality. The stories Pilar tells are no fireside folk tales, but powerful testimonies that Robert Jordan, the rational male educated Westerner, hopes to emulate in writing. This is not nostalgia for older or more primitive forms of narrative, but rather a statement about the need for contemporary writing to derive from knowledge and experience, to tell the truth, and not to succumb to false heroism. These were all values that Hemingway held dear in his own writing. Pilar may not write, but as Jordan recognises, she knows a writer's craft better than he does. Hemingway therefore dignifies her knowledge through association with truth, and her speech by association with writing, good writing. The more meaningful contrast is rather, perhaps, between the Republican's colloquial, illiterate but ancient and dignified speech and the inarticulate and deafening thrumming of the fascist plains. Arguedas also used the bullfight to think about modernity in the Peruvian context, and the values and cultural resonances associated with it also have a strong bearing on his use of language. In Yawar Fiesta, a bilingual title where Yawar is the Quechua word for blood, and Fiesta, of course, the Spanish word for festival, the indigenous population of the Andean town of Pukio <laughs> is informed that it will not be allowed to celebrate Peru's national holiday with its local version of the bullfight, which typically involves drunkenness, dynamite, and the death of several residents, because the governing elite considers it primitive and barbaric. They insist that the bullfight should rather be fought in the Spanish way, complete with a Spanish-born matador with local residents relegated to the stands. And it's worth noting the way that Spain, symbol of the pre-modern in Hemingway, now becomes the inverse in Arguedas, a fact that in itself speaks to Spain's fraught relationship with modernity. The comuneros, or Indian residents, are tricked into preparing for this while believing that the fight will proceed as normal and bring down from the hills the demigod bull, Misitu, in a show of communal strength and valour. On the day itself, they not only find themselves excluded, but discover the matador to be a coward, and so invade the arena, killing the bull with dynamite. Traditionally, in the local version of the bullfight Arguedas describes, this is quoting Flores Galindo, the bull enters the ring with a, um, with a condor tied to its back, symbolising the encounter between the world of above and the world below, between the west and the Andes. 
but by removing the symbolic presence of the condor and having the bull killed instead with dynamite, Arguedas renders the bullfight less a traditional symbol of colonial struggle than of a contemporary struggle over the shape and scope of modernity. As William Rowe reflects, the conclusion of Yawar Fiesta is ambiguous. By killing the bull, the Indians have killed a god, but have they simply demonstrated their strength within the terms of a stabilisation of resistance and oppression reached in colonial times, or have they shown their capacity to destroy the symbols which hold them back from a more modern understanding of their situation? End quote. Modernisation is both the negative force associated with colonialism and its destruction of indigenous culture, but also the positive force associated with the empowerment of the indigenous community in the present. This positive, empowering modernisation is figured in the road connecting isolated Andean towns with the coast, constructed by collective enterprise in the 1920s, leading to demographic and political change and a challenge to old social hierarchies. The terrible passivity of the Indios in Arguedas' early, earlier collection of short stories, Agua, is replaced in Yawar Fiesta by the political consciousness of a new generation given access to the city. But this is itself viewed ambivalently in the novel. The student Escobar, who seeks to reform the Indios' dark, fearful and primitive existence and rid them of their mythical fear, is reaching right back into the history of the conquest itself, which was possible partly because the Incas believed the Spaniards with their unfamiliar horses and guns to be mythical or divine beings. And yet we have reason to doubt Escobar, because while his desire to release the Indio from primitivism and servitude is a laudable one, it is also demagogic and naive, as he ingenuously, ingenuously aligns himself with the eminently corrupt power of the municipal governor. The programme of modernisation he espouses seems above all to require an enlightenment that announces the end of indigenous culture while speaking on its behalf. There is a danger, the novel suggests, that an, an enlightenment predicated on rapid and total demystification, even where that includes the demystification of the oppressor, will produce an irreparable loss as great as the original despojo or dispossession. The Indios' realisation that the bull Misitu is in fact not a god but just an ordinary bull comes in the full glare of the sun and produces silence in a people consistently evoked through sound and the voice. For all their good intentions then, the communist students are associated in the novel with a recolonization of the comuneros, as their symbolic endorsement of the Spanish bullfight indicates. Arguedas' novel seems to hope for an organic process of change born in the Andes itself and not imported from the coast, a process for which the starting point is neither the nostalgic mirage of the pre-colonial past nor the utopian promise of an enlightened future, but rather the cultural mestizaje or mutual cultural influence that Arguedas regarded as so significant to Andean society and that Cuban anthropologist Fernando Ortiz described as transculturation. The reason the conclusion of Yawar Fiesta is so ambiguous is that its whole symbolic structure partakes of this transculturation. The bull is both coloniser and indigenous god, the sun is both enlightenment and Inca power, the voice is both oral culture and political speech. Like Hemingway, Arguedas also reflects this struggle over modernity in his use of language. Unlike most other writers and artists interested in the indigenous culture of Peru, Arguedas was himself brought up bilingual. The son of a white lawyer who travelled extensively through the Andes, after his mother died, the young Arguedas was treated by his stepmother as a servant and brought up by the indigenous servants of her estate, an experience that developed a lifelong connection with the Quechua-speaking Andean community. 
His love for this culture and sense of injustice at its marginalisation was expressed not only in his novels and translations, but also in his work as an ethnographer. In his 1950 essay, The Novel and the Problem of Literary Expression in Peru, Adgathas described in agonistic terms the artistic problem he faced in trying to describe the world of Quechua speakers in Spanish. Filled with the language of arduous struggle and the desire for communion and universality, the essay explains how he strove to communicate the spirit and essence of Quechua in Spanish, seeking out, as he put it, the subtle disruptions that would make Castilian a proper mould, an appropriate instrument. The essay revolves around the duality of a divided culture, which he says will one day either fuse or separate. In the meantime, the beautiful and heroic Via Crucis of the bilingual artist will remain. Like his depiction of the bullfight, the bilingualism of his expression asserts the legitimacy of Quechua culture, celebrating its survival through the adaptation and absorption of colonial practices, while celebrating also the immense plasticity of Spanish. Arguedas chooses Spanish over Quechua because it guarantees him both a wider range of expression and a larger audience, but in its classical form it cannot accommodate Peruvian reality. A literary language unmodified by that reality simply perpetuates duality, and so in his novels Arguedas seeks an artistic expression of transculturation and mestizaje, however vague a cultural solution some consider this to be in reality. It will be clear by now that for both, for both writers, bilingual expression can be described as a bridge across time and culture. This is, of course, very pertinent to the epigrapher for whom the bell tolls, John Donne's No Man is an Island Entire of Itself, and to Robert Jordan's sense of becoming completely integrated at the end of the novel. The bridge that Robert Jordan must blow is both a symbol of connection between people in a novel about a fratricidal war that speaks to the lost cause of socialist endeavour, while the blowing of it is emblematic of the attempt to keep out the enemy and cut off their access. In other words, it embodies both the hope and the failure of the Republican cause, and the wider implications for humanity that Hemingway ascribes to its defeat by fascism. It is also an emblem of modernity, both its construction and its destruction requiring that technical knowledge associated ambivalently with progress. When Robert Jordan comes to blow the bridge, he acknowledges its strength and grace, its cleanliness in comparison with old stone bridges, crediting the dignity of even this most cold and inanimate of victims. Again, there is an attempt to bring those aesthetic values of the bullfight to war, which is both too technical and too brutal to accommodate them. <coughs> but if the bridge itself remains cold and inanimate, a technical problem to be solved, language is made rich, warm and pliable. Hemingway exploits the Spanish idiom in order to multiply meaning, to find in the translation of a word or a, ra or a range of meaning um, that both overlaps with and extends its meaning in English. The literal translation of false cognates can, of course, lead to misinterpretation, and Hemingway, contrary to what has often been suggested, was no doubt well aware that there were both risks and opportunities in playing on double meanings. There is one word in particular that suggests this is the case. As the band makes its preparations on the day of the attack, Pablo apologises to Robert Jordan for having stolen some of his equipment, saying, I am sorry for having taken thy, ma thy material. It was an equivocation. This statement does not make sense in English, unless we correctly infer from the context that the Spanish equivocación means error or mistake. In English, to equivocate is to use words or expressions that are susceptible of a double signification with a view to mislead, 
especially the expression of a virtual falsehood in the form of a proposition which is verbally true. To equivocate is, in a bad sense, to mean one thing and express another, to prevaricate, to insinuate by equivocation, to evade. The meanings of the verb and the noun gravitate around ambiguity and falsehood, a reminder of all that Hemingway despises in literature, namely the failure to keep it accurate. But at the same time, it seems to be a joke about his own linguistic technique in the novel. Obsolete meanings of equivocation in English include a word identical in form but not in meaning. To equivocate in the 17th century was to have the same sound with, to resemble so closely as to occasion mistake, to use a word in more than one application or sense, to use words of double meaning, to deal in ambiguities, to misapprehend through ambiguity of language. To equivocate is quite a risk for a writer for whom, to quote one critic, style was a moral act, a desperate struggle for moral probity amid the confusions of the world and the slippery complexities of one's own nature. To set things down simple and right is to hold a standard of rightness against a deceiving world. But for whom the bell tolls consistently acknowledges the slipperiness of language, employing translation to generate, even at the level of single words, the sense that ideas can contain their opposite, which is perhaps not as opposite as it seemed. Adgerdas's bridges are not to be found in Yoad Fiesta, but in his later and better-known novel, Los Rios Profundos, or Deep Rivers. Perhaps under the influence of negative critical reaction to Yoad Fiesta, one critic described it as unintelligible, Adgerdas deemed the stylistic technique of Mixtura to have failed, opting in Deep Rivers for a more translational mode that attempts to convey a Quechua worldview in Spanish. He does this by extrapolating highly poetic cultural echoes from phonetic associations between words and even parts of words, as in the explanation of the onomatopoeic suffix iyu and the noun iya that precedes his description of the sumbayu, a spinning top of Andean origin believed to have magical properties that has a great symbolic resonance, um, almost redemptive kind of resonance within the novel. Given to Ernesto by his school friend Antero, Ernesto attributes to its singing and dancing the power of memory, communication and friendship, its name combines the Spanish zumbar with the Quechua iyu, a suffix that in one of its forms conveys the music of small wings in flight, the music of light objects in motion. The zumbayu itself is described as a singing insect, an association further enhanced by the description of the tancayu, a gentle buzzing horsefly that sips nectar from flowers. The association of the zumbayu with iya is more complex, as the noun is broader and more abstract in meaning. It names a certain kind of light and monsters born moonstruck. The certain kind of light is the non-solar or minor light of the moon or lightning, for example. Its monsters include a child with two heads or a bull calf born without a head or an enormous black and luminous cliff with a wide seam of white rock opaquely lit or an ear of corn with an irregular pattern of kernels or the mythical bulls that live in the depths of high lakes. Iyas can cause either great good or great harm, bringing death or resurrection. What is the relation between Iyu and Iya, or between the many things that Iya can designate, or between Iya and the Sumbayu? Firstly, both the sounds of small wings and non-solar light belong on a minor rather than a major scale, and evidently Iya in its monstrous guise is magical, perhaps diabolical, misshapen or disproportionate, and powerful. In his elaboration of the onomatopoeic resonance of Iyu, the narrator describes not only the horsefly Tankayu, but the Andean flute or kena called Pinkuyu. 
This instrument, a very specialised material and fabrication, is used only for epic songs and dances, and only the wakrapuku horn has a deeper and more powerful tone. The pinkuyu has a powerfully energising emotional effect on its listener. No music goes as deep into the human heart. By mutual association, then, Arguedas brings together resonant natural sound with minor light and magical irregularity of form, and by associating these with Andean mythology and cultural practice, he makes these the characteristic elements of the culture he translates. It is on the basis of a phonetic feature of the language that he extrapolates these characteristics, and these in turn become key elements of the novel's poetic structure and the internal logic of its images. <coughs> if the bull and the bullfight were the emblems of mixtura, in deep rivers the bridge is the complex symbol of translation. In its association with travel as well as structural solidity, the bridge presides over a gentler and more lyrical, though never sentimental, novel in which key themes and motifs include journeys, strangers and home. The semi-autobiographical novel about the education of a young boy, Ernesto, his growing awareness of the injustices of his society and his love for the autochthonous culture of the Andes, freights the bridge with a significance at once historical, cultural and linguistic, incorporating this man-made structure into the powerful natural landscape as a symbol of the ancient and modern, the indigenous and European, but also as a place of contemplation and reinvigoration, and a sonorous force of connection and transmission. Standing on the stone-built bridge over the river Pachachaca, a name that in Quechua means bridge over the world, Ernesto observes that this bridge built by the Spanish colonizer forces the river into two currents. His description of these currents evokes both their struggle and their arresting power, though the narrative implies that the power of the river itself is greater and more enduring. Given the symbolic implications of this, it's perhaps surprising that Ernesto should wonder which he loves more, the river or the bridge. He finds that both clear his head, filling him with strength and heroic dreams, returning him to himself. He hopes to become like the river, crossing the not-round earth and cutting through the landscape before emptying into the sea. Again, we perceive a de desire for communion, unity and universality, a vision at once mystical and pantheistic. But his love of the bridge is significant not only because it implies that it has a strength and power of its own, but because it is associated in the narrative with perspective. The rivers that run along and across the surface of the earth offer a course to migrating birds whose bird's eye view Ernesto covets. He wants to be like the birds and also like the rivers, strong and tranquil, with their flux and movement, but also their purpose and design. The river is always best perceived from the bridge or from the rocks on which the bridges rest, and both the river and the bridge are associated with movement and travel, as opposed to stagnation and the hatred of strangers that Ernesto and his father often encounter in isolated towns and villages. In the novel, Ernesto attempts to act as a bridge between two materially divided cultures. In his life and literature, Arguedas did the same. As he wrote, I attempted to transform into written language what I was as an individual, a strong living link capable of being universalised, between the great walled-in nation and the generous, humane side of the oppressors. The bridge is nevertheless complex and ambiguous in what it represents. To some extent, it becomes the site of a crossover of cultural and historical references that empties them of content and allows for new formulations. But the bridge is also associated with the coming apocalypse, ambiguously figured as a plague and a political revolution. As in For Whom the Bell Tolls, a novel predicated on the associative power of the bridge must end in its symbolic destruction. 
As the indigenous serfs crossed the river by Oroyas or the hanging bridges of the Incas, the narrative seems to abandon the associative translational principle the stone-built bridge has come to embody for the revivalist connotations of the Inca bridge, now loaded with political overtones. But although they arrive as an unstoppable force, the colonos have come not to protest or rebel, but rather to ask for benediction from the Catholic priest. If the novel has been written under the sign of translation rather than mixtura, how are we to read the crossing of this more culturally autochthonous bridge, only to demand the blessing of a priest who is in league with the oppressive landowner? The novel ends on this highly ambivalent note, perhaps calling into question Argadas's confidence in translation as a metaphor for cultural exchange and as the basis for social or political progress. Argadas's last novel, um, El Zorro de Arriba y El Zorro de Abajo, The Fox from Above and The Fox from Below, published posthumously after the author's suicide, was to bitterly burn all the bridges so lovingly constructed in his earlier writing. Written in the face of rampant modernisation during the 1950s and 60s in Peru, it employs the dualities of traditional Andean mythology at the same time as it collapses the fragile balance and exchange of linguistic duality into heteroglossic and uprooted dialects. In this novel, the speed and imposition of change and the uprooting of people produces mixing as pollution and chaos, rather than as productive mutual influence, in a world of exploitative extranjeros and exploited forasteros cut off from themselves, both words meaning stranger, but he applies apparently arbitrarily a negative value to one and a positive value to the other. Ironically, it has come to be seen as Arguedas' most modernist and hence least provincial text, in spite of the fact that it encapsulates the destruction of all his hopes. If Yawar Fiesta encapsulated barbarism, linguistic and cultural, and Deep Rivers aimed to move beyond it through translation, in his last novel, barbarism triumphs in inarticulacy, stuttering and verbal diarrhoea. The attempt to internalise difference through mixtura, or to value the stranger through translation, mushrooms into a doubling of the stranger under the sign of the inarticulate. Both Hemingway and Arguedas attempt in their use of language to reflect the schism of their respective context, while bridging it through the integration of two languages. In both cases, there is a political and ethical dimension to the author's use of language that recognises the unequal distribution of power and the complexities of modernisation. For whom the Beltolls and Yawar Fiesta are imbued with a sense of the ceremonial, the epic and the sacred, while at the same time tending towards a mode of representation born of a fundamentally modern sensibility. In the same way, each author writes with his ear attuned to oral culture and the materiality of words, while giving speech the force of a modern political consciousness. This is at the heart of their use of language, which tends towards integration while attending to what Antoine Berman has called the properly ethical aim of the translating act, receiving the foreign as foreign. To conclude then, literary multilingualism is a very diverse phenomenon, but as a means of engaging with modernity, it lends itself to the formal staging of modernity's disjunctive character. The sense of duality or multiplicity inherent in the author's multilingual experience of the world transforms itself into a negotiation of the great themes of modernity, rupture, simultaneity, mobility, at the level of the sentence and the word. In its ability to either draw in readers through translation or exclude them through non-translation, multilingualism can generate a relationship between text and world that is at once formal and actual, utopian and dysfunctional, unravelling the dichotomies of barbarism in the form of the word itself. Thank you. Thank you.
um, try thanks. Res- try responding to, to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was a really fascinating paper, really nice combination of kind of broad thinking on multilingualism and its relationship with modernity, and then these really intricate examples in Hemingway and Algradius. So thanks very much for that, and I hope it's going to stimulate lots of discussion. Um, I prepared a bit of a response, but I've been scribbling things in the margins I go, because it was kind of raising all sorts of questions, but now I've realised my scribbles are completely illegible, <laughs> so I'm probably just going to come out as slightly in- incoherent. But I, I thought I would just draw out a few things, really, that I was interested in. Um, I might try and um, think about how some of them relate to my own work, but hopefully keep it kind of open for everybody else as well. So um, the first thing I thought we could think about was this relationship between multilingualism and modernity then. So... Um, I think you said at the beginning modernity is associated with demographic upheaval, post-colonial consciousness, globalisation, um, and that, that, that it was a sort of associated with movements of national self-definition, but in conjunction with the kind of the global movement of people. And um, I think implicit, or a little bit explicit in what you were saying, was that there was a kind of there were kind of two forces going on. There was both this movement of national self-definition and a kind of global kind of movement outwards. Um, But in a way, I just wanted to kind of develop that and sort of say that in a way, maybe multilingualism can be conceived as almost a kind of um, side effect then of monolingualism. Mm -hmm. So to kind of maybe almost, because I would have said in a way, modernity might be associated with a moment when um, languages were sort of, nations were kind of affirming languages as the kind of symbol of of identity. Um, And multilingualism then only becomes a kind of marked phenomenon um, because of the creation of an insistence on national languages. Um, there's maybe a kind of an assumption that most people kind of should be monolingual, um, so the national community would be defined by people sharing a culture and a language. Um, and so that multilingualism comes about when these kind of nations come into contact with each other. But mm. that's what I mean. Yeah. So um, it's actually perhaps in itself already kind of uh, comes out of that divisiveness. Um, so just, you know, quickly to kind of go back to the French example, which is where all my kind of thinking comes from, you could say that this also kind of goes back to the early modern period, um, when French was sort of first conceived of as a unified language. So that was after the Edict of vieille cotteret in 1539, and then you've got the establishment of the Académie Française in 1635, which was kind of charged with safeguarding um, and standardising the language. And so there was a kind of, at that point, a kind of new, I suppose, resistance to this idea of, of barbarisms then, or regional di- um, dialects, um, and that was then intensified after the revolution, and came with the idea then of French as a kind of language of the republic, which would sort of supposedly unify diverse citizens. Um, and then as a kind of just offshoot to that, you could say that the French colonial project um, demonstrated a particular kind of investment in the privileged status of French, I think a bit more than British colonialism did. Um, so there was a belief that the sort of the spread of the use the, fr- the use of French overseas was a kind of key part of the assimilation of natives, um, and the imposition of language was also kind of part of a tool for, for um, affirming power. Um, so all of this is really to kind of say that maybe if multilingualism becomes kind of more visible during the modern period, maybe it's because it's kind of set into this newly stark opposition with monolingualism and with notions of national language and linguistic purity. Um, maybe it comes, in fact, with an increased sense that language has the power to unify as well as then having a kind of a standardised form. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe that's something we could kind of come back to later. Um, I don't know how, how much this was relevant, I just because there was this sort of the word globalisation kind of floated about in the first part of your paper. Um, 
I just thought maybe we could discuss what notions of globalisation do to conceptions of language usage. Um, you could say that it creates a sense of increased connectivity, exposure of speakers of different languages to one another. Um, or you could say that it's a form of kind of neo-imperialism with English and then perhaps increasingly Spanish functioning as a kind of a global language. Although you might come back to that distinction between world language and global language. Um, I was wondering what was kind of underneath that. I yeah. think you said it was as if globalising, it's not a globalising language, which might be what was implied by world. But Yeah, well, it was a double, it was a global rather than a world language, yeah, and then exactly. a global, global rather than a globalising language, and each of those being quite freighted with kind of, uh, with meaning. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, we can certainly okay. come back to that. Yeah. So maybe we could come back to that. Um, and also I thought maybe there was, a, again, a kind of mode of thinking in there that globalisation requires an understanding of kind of sameness, and different, so an idea of a kind of on the one hand a global language uh, or globalizing language, maybe, and then on the other hand, kind of local difference, local kind of dialects, but those still that's still not kind of quite multilingualism, mm. um, it still kind of sense, keeps the sense of kind of maybe separation between languages. Um, okay, and then I've got lots of scribbles that I can't really read. I think it was to do with the idea of barbarism, which I just thought was really interesting. Is that the title to the whole book? Yeah, then. So I just kind of wondered about sort of also barbarism implies a kind of violence, but then maybe there's also a suggestion that if you don't kind of allow barbarism, that's another form of violence. And so mm. there's a kind of ambiguity there. Um, and then I thought maybe there are problems with sort of um, maybe a desire to kind of valorise barbarism or barbarism in terms of kind of linguistic barbar barbarisms. But if you... If you do that, do you kind of retain the opposition between civilization and barbarism just by retaining the notion? Maybe it kind of always functions in that sort of binary mm. opposition. Um, so yeah, maybe you could tell us maybe more about how you use it in, in the work and in other examples that you've got. Okay. Um, and then I was kind of more broadly interested in your readings of the text and the ways in which language and multilingualism can be kind of a way of thinking about other questions such as modernization and cultural interaction. And then kind of what, what are the different ways in which bilingual texts stage the relationship between languages? So I thought you had some really interesting examples there. So you might think that bilingual texts are ones that explicitly include vocabulary drawn from another language. Um, so there are examples of that, but maybe there are other kinds, I think you, you, know, you talked about this, other kinds of linguistic presence that one might find in a bilingual or multilingual text. So what kinds of presence would those be? And I think they're quite hard to kind of pin down and, and to analyse and theorise. So we could come back to that. Um, so you said in relation to our gradus that, that, was, that multilingualism was there kind of on the level of syntax, I think, pronunciation, as well as vocabulary. Yeah. Um, so I wondered kind of, um, yeah, how one kind of identifies those moments. And I think you talked about rhythm as mm -hmm. well. Um, but you also said that they don't necessarily kind of convey greater semantic meaning. So kind of what, what do they do? Um, I, for examples from my own work include um, a well-known Francophone Moroccan writer called Abdel Kabir um, Khatibi, um, who obviously knows really well, who um, occasionally basically inserts Arabic words into his French, but that's not really actually what his notion of bilingual writing is about. Um, it's something much more kind of ineffable. There's a sense of a kind of silent presence almost in the work. Maybe it's in the level of rhythm. Um, but it also might be on a level that's kind of actually imperceptible to the reader. So there might be kind of word choices that are going on as a result of resonances with other languages that are kind of also too elusive to be visible or, or audible. So then what does the reader kind of do about those? Um, 
Another example for my own work is an Algerian writer called Leila Sabah, who's, who wrote, basically writes in French, and French was her mother's language, um, but her father spoke Arabic and never taught it to her. Um, and all her writing is kind of obsessed with this sort of absence of Arabic. So, um, but she's almost says that that absence kind of shapes her French nevertheless. So there's a sense she kind of wants it to be there, but she never spoke Arabic, she never kind of understood it. Um, and I just translated a little quotation where she says, so my father's language, so absent, heard, lost and found, again, found again, never spoken. This language is there in spite of my voluntary silence. It's there, sedimented in me, and no one can take it away from me. So it's really bizarre because she says it's absent, but she's also saying it's there. So um, anyway, other ways in which languages might be present, other languages might be present in a text. And then finally, um, just an example from a book by Jahan Ramzani called Transnational Poetics. I don't know if you know that one. Yeah. So he's not particularly looking at kind of multilingualism per se. It's not so much about the kind of importation of different words from, from other languages, but an idea of kind of um, the borrowing, I guess, of poetic forms. So he talks about the idea of a poetry. He says, enmeshed, even when, it's, when, it, it is, it's, sorry, when it is most stridently nationalist in ideology by a complexly cross-national weave in its rhythms and tropes, stanza patterns and generic adaptations. Um, another possibility might be that bilingual writing could be more of a kind of an attitude um, as much as a practice. So again, this comes from, from writers that I'm familiar with. Um, maybe it's a way of thinking um, that's sort of resistant to the idea of a national framework. Maybe it's a kind of political or an ethical stance. Um, so there's a novel by Khatibi, a Moroccan writer, where he associates, well, basically it takes place in Sweden, which is in itself slightly kind of bizarre, um, and it's associated with them with a the notion of kind of political neutrality, um, and neutrality there is a kind of, it's a rejection of colonialism, of any kind of desire for conquest, and then there's also, it's also associated with a kind of an ethics of relationality um, with a kind of a loved one, so, um, you know, he sort of talks about his relationship with wife and various lovers in, in this way that would be kind of like a refusal of possessiveness and kind of mastery over the other, and this is all associated with the kind of ethics of, of bilingual writing and thinking. Um, so it's all, they're all kind of similarly, I guess, um, sort of resistant to notions of sort of mastery and appropriation. Um, anyway, I'll just come back to another thing in your, your paper, um, perhaps before, before we can stop and, and discuss this together. Um, and the other thing was the metaphor of translation and the bridge. Um, so the bridge clearly kind of was a problematic figure in the, in the Algredas novel, The Deep Rivers. Mm -hmm. Um. So often we think of bridges then of clearly kind of, you know, connectors, but here it was also a figure of division and potentially destruction. Um, and you, I think you sort of said at the end that this maybe made us kind of rethink the notion of translation or made our greatest rethink the notion of translation, but I wondered kind of um, if we could do a bit more work with that metaphor. So translation is it's like a bridge, it's the kind of carrying across, but um, does that mean that's the wrong metaphor for translation as well? Um, or is that kind of, is that pushing the symbolism of bridge is translation kind of too far. Um, but maybe, again, that if, if we use the metaphor as bridge, uh, of bridges for, for translation, maybe it kind of, again, suggests that there are like two distinct languages and meanings are somehow carried across from one to, to the other in a slightly sort of more too sort of oppositional kind of a way. Um, on the other hand, you had mixtura, which was more of a kind of sense of chaos um, and pollution. Um, so what, what would be maybe a kind of a better metaphor? Um, and then I thought maybe, maybe there's not so much necessarily a problem with the metaphors, but the problem that language usage is always kind of bound up with power structures. 
Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's what kind of this all comes down to you. Um, and whether the idea that multilingualism might be a kind of barbarism is really a sort of effect of, of well, I shouldn't say colonialism, but let's say imperialism or a kind of imperialist way of thinking, um, and with a sort of dissemination of power that then takes place through language, kind of hierarchization of languages in relation to one another. Um, so finally, in the face of that, um, maybe we could think a bit again about sort of what place literature can have in kind of expressing any form of sort of resistance or challenge. Um, you just said that um, Algradis' artistic example of transculturation, you said it was kind of a bit vague um, as a cultural solution. Well, he's so been accused of it. He's been accused yeah. of it, yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, I don't know, is that true? Um, you know, does it matter? Should it have been something different? You know, so I'll, I'll stop there. And should we stop for a drink? And yeah, then yeah. Okay, so and you can always bring your drinks back, so maybe we'll... Uh, have your drinks and reconvene. Mm -hmm. Okay.